Good morning, Wilshire. So glad that you're able to be with us for this worship service this morning. Uh, I am looking forward to the time that we get to be together uh, in real life. But uh, I'm grateful that God has called us together like this. I'm grateful that you felt the call to be with God's people virtually this morning and to hear from God's word and to share prayers and to share songs uh, in this way. And um, there will be a time when we get to all be together again, and that's going to be a good day. And um, thank you for your faithfulness. I've been doing this series, and uh, I appreciate the nice comments that people have made. This series on how God is in our everyday lives. A lot of times, uh, some of our problems and some of the modern world's problems come from thinking of God as really small or thinking of God as having just kind of one niche job that he does. We keep God kind of in a in a box uh, in the church building and we bring him out on Sunday mornings. And, you know, if we're really faithful, maybe on Wednesday nights we pop him out of the box. But then that's all God does. And the rest of the time uh, we, we can uh, ignore him. And the fact is, God is really big if he's God at all. He is really, really a big God. He is involved in our lives in lots of different ways. And thinking about that has led me to realize and to just help us meditate on all the different ways the Bible indicates that God is involved with you every day. And that as you open your eyes and as the mind of faith kind of takes over, you can begin to experience God day in and day out and recognize him in your daily life. So that's what we're trying to do. So um, today we're going to focus on uh, God as truth and uh, the way in which our interactions with the things that we call true also are interactions with God. So I hope we can uh, do that this morning and follow along with me. I'm just going to take us through a few scriptures, including that uh, passage that we were looking, uh, looking at in the book of Job that we had read to us in Job 28. But I'm going to start somewhere else, a passage that we're all familiar with in Romans chapter 1. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may not be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, we're very aware of this. Uh, passage where we remember that Paul kind of opens up his long argument in the book of Romans with this claim that says people are not in the dark about God except because of human choices. That if you don't know God, it's because of human choices. Now this, I don't think, and we can talk about why this is, but I don't think this is talking about individuals suppressing the knowledge of God individually. I don't think this is 
necessarily about a single individual saying, I don't want to know God and I'm going to keep him away. I think that happens sometimes, but that's not really Paul's main point. He's actually talking about something way more insidious here. He's talking about the way that whole cultures, whole nations, whole kingdoms will sort of set up their cultural life, set up their you know, social life together in ways that kind of put blinders on us to the presence of God, make us distracted or to make us, you know, focused on something else so that we don't notice God in us. And we give the glory that's due to God and the thanks that's due to God, we, we give it to something else or someone else. And I really think that's what he's talking about here. Uh, and... And what that you know, uh, and what that means is that the kingdoms of the world keep following this pattern of suppressing the truth about God for the people that belong to them. I'll just make this comment before I get into my lesson. What that should tell you is, since the kingdoms of the world kind of set up their social life to suppress the knowledge of God, to keep us away from God, we can't trust the kingdoms of the world. There has never been a kingdom of the world that you could truly point to and say, well, now that's a Christian nation. And I know that a lot of nations have claimed to be Christian nations, including the United States. And it and the United States has had some Christian characteristics and a lot of Christian people in it. And, you know, and it's claimed to be a Christian nation sometimes. And Great Britain made that claim. And France has made that claim. And Germany has made Lots of nations have made that claim in the past. But there has never actually been a Christian nation or a Christian kingdom except one. And that is the kingdom that Jesus himself set up. Because these human nations tend to do this thing that Paul's complaining about. The way they do it's different every time. But human nations keep doing this, finding ways to suppress, to kind of drive out of consciousness the truths about God and to make it difficult for human beings to raise their eyes up and really seek God. Okay, now if that's the correct way to understand this passage, you read it for yourself and and read the surrounding context and see if you think that's right, then that leads us to a conclusion. As long as we're suppressing the truth, we are not going to get God. There is no God without truth. In other words, if I am running away from the truth in my personal life, if I'm part of a group that's running away from the truth, that's going to have I may not realize that's what it's doing, but that's going to have the result of also causing me to run away from God. I don't have to be actively suppressing even knowledge of God for that to happen, although that's one of the very common ways for it to happen. That's what Paul's complaining about in this passage. But really, any time that myself individually or the groups that I'm a part of, the culture that I'm a part of, gets tangled up, in, you know, systematically distorting the truth or systematically lying about anything, that is also going to have the, the, the byproduct of driving me away from the presence of God. 
God is the God of truth. And so if I find myself tangled up in deceit, I'm going to find myself being kind of pushed away from God. There have been sad, sad stories of Christians who have convinced themselves that they need to lie in God's name. There have been cases where people have made up, you know, miracles because, you know, that'll help people to believe in God more and that'll be good for them and they'll, they'll be more righteous. And so we need to lie for, for God. Let me tell you something. When you hear a, if you ever hear a church leader that says, we got to suppress the truth, we got to bend the facts, we got to twist things, you know, for God, you know that's not the real God that they're talking about. They're no longer on God's wavelength. God is the God of truth. And in fact, that's true of any movement. Once you're in a movement that says, well, here's the real truth, but we got to distort it and we got to say it's like this over here instead. Whatever that is, that's not much to do with God anymore. God is the God of truth. And if you get caught up in deceit, that's going to drive you away from the presence of God. That's the first thing we probably need to know about truth and the nature of God. But there's a flip side, too, that Scripture reveals. And that's kind of this next point I want to make. There's no God without truth, but it's also true there's no truth without God. And that's what that passage I had us read from Job 28 was all about. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there back to that passage, Job 28. We started in verse 12, but really that whole chapter is interesting. And this passage, uh, I, I was I had this first pointed out to me by Lynn Furhelm. He found it in an article and really liked what it said. And so I started looking at it and I've been thinking about it for a while. And it's just really interesting some of the features that it has. Uh, you know, Job is talking about what wisdom really is, what human wisdom really is. And he says, you know, human wisdom isn't much. We really try to know what's going on. We can't find it very well. Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. In other words, we don't know how to get it, really. The deep, that's like, you know, the ocean, mysterious ocean, says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not in me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the sky. Destruction and death. He's kind of bringing all of creation into the story. And they say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. In other words, the sea, the deep, birds, you know, go up as high as you can, go down as low as you can. Nobody really understands the truth. Nobody understands wisdom except, verse 23, God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heaven. 
and he established the force of the winds, he measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, when he looked at wisdom and appraised it, he confirmed it, and he tested it, and he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Okay, that is a that is a mouthful. There is so much that Job in his meditation, remember he's he's angry with God. He is not at peace with God in his heart. He's trying to continue to believe in God at the same time he is struggling with God and he's but he still knows God is the one who really grasps the truth of things. And if I don't have God, I don't have truth. And he affirms the fear of the Lord. That's where real wisdom is to be found. Uh, the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs says that repeatedly. Other passages say very similar things in the Old Testament. If you want to be wise, if you want to be one of the wise, the knowers, the ones who have the truth, the one who have wisdom, start with the fear of God. And this word fear, you know, it's more like being in awe of something, uh, having not just respect, but the aw the awesome side of respect, that is... Uh, I, God is too big for us. That kind of respect. I, 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 God is far beyond our understanding. That kind of awe. The awe of God. That's what wisdom starts from. Realizing how magnificent God is. The, the interesting thing about this passage is that uh, it's asserting that if we, if we are smart at all, we are smart because God has made it possible for us to be smart. Those of you who have turned to this in your, in your Bibles, you can look up at the top of the chapter, and I didn't put this in our PowerPoint, but you can look at it. In the top of the chapter, starting of verse, uh, of chapter 28, Job starts talking about mining, you know, which was something most people in that time wouldn't know anything about. But, you know, there were certain people who would go, and he says they go into the darkness, and this is, this, almost nobody knows what goes on down there. It's dark, and they bring candles, and they bring light, and they, and they find things that nobody can, else can see. You know, they're, they're digging out these these holes with skill, and, and they find these treasures that are there that no other eye has seen. And it's interesting, if you put the first half of the chapter about, about this mining activity, and you put that together with the second half of the chapter, you get this interesting image that God uh, is the mine, that all of our knowledge is is mined from. That is so strange. You know, we've been we've been poking these little tiny holes, and every now and then we'll dig out a little nugget here and a little fragment there, and we'll hold it up. We'll be so proud of ourselves. And it turns out the whole mountain is God. The awe 
of God, the fear of God. He's the one who holds the whole thing. God understands the way to it. He alone knows where wisdom dwells. He views the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. He's the one that established the force of the wind. We'd be so excited if we could figure out how the wind works. Uh, how we measure the waters. Back then, they didn't know how to do that. We know more about how to do that. And we really are proud of ourselves when we can do that. But God knew it the whole time. He was the mountain we were poking our little holes of knowledge into, mining our little treasures of truth out of. Uh, and, and, and if we want truth, whether we know it or not, we're starting with God. There's an interesting implication, I think. I think you're going to make the most progress the quickest with your knowledge gathering if you start with God. I think that's what the passage implies. The fear of the Lord or the awe of the Lord, that's where wisdom really starts. You shun evil, you're a righteous person. That's the best way to get wisdom quickly. But I think the flip side's true too. I think that the most, that, that all truth and all getting of truth brings us a little closer to God. And, you know, I don't just mean reading the Bible and getting truth from the Bible. That certainly brings us closer to God. I'm talking about all truth. I think when you know, meteorologists measure the force of the wind or figure out the waters or, or the rain or the path of the sun thunderstorm or any other thing about the physical world that God created, they are getting a little closer to God. I think all truth brings us closer to God. The nature of truth, the real truth, is also telling us something about the nature of who God is. Now that's an important insight that can help us. Because what that means is this, and this, is, this can be important in your life, depends on who you know and what kind of conversations you're having. But, but here's one way in which it'll help you. The most rage-filled church-hating atheists that you know. When they are seeking to say something true, when they really, they're not just, you know, pounding a pulpit or seeing if they can get a rise out of you at Thanksgiving dinner, but they are really wanting to say something true and to grasp the truth. Uh... What they're seeking is actually a bit of God. What's pulling them, the beauty, the, um, the attraction of truth, is really God. And that's, that's so ironic because, of course, as an atheist, they're running away from God too. But part of what's making them run from God is that seeking of truth, which is also God. You run away from God and you're running towards another aspect of God. Uh, 
Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was no Orthodox Christian by any means, said, I'm paraphrasing one of his phrases, but he said, when we fly from you, God, you are the wings. And, and he's right about that. I mean, God's all around us in so many different ways. And even people who are reject or say in their mind they're rejecting God, to the extent that they're not engaging in self-deception and not engaging in just anger, but are really seeking truth, every time they're seeking truth, they're actually chasing after God. That's true. I think all truth is God's truth. And so all truth that I seek brings me closer to God. Any time that that you can get somebody to have a conversation where they they can stop being defensive with you and stop being angry with you and you can stop being angry with them and they can really talk about what's true and what they most deeply believe and you can get them into that zone where they're try, trying to figure stuff out and trying to think about what's true. Anytime that happens, you're actually getting them into God's realm because God is the God of truth. And you're helping them to get close to that. Uh, as another implication of this, seeking the truth about anything can be a practice of worship. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't have the requisite skills to be a scientist. Um, but I've read this from enough scientists to know that this is a real thing. That scientists who believe in God will say their best moments in the lab or their best moments in you know, doing their theoretical calculations are also moments where they feel the profound you know, approach of God. Uh, Johannes Kepler who, you know, who, who is really important for understanding how the planets move and so forth. They've made a crucial breakthrough that we still use today. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm like a priest. And, and, and he was very pious and he had, you know, regular devotional life and so forth. But when he says, I'm like a priest, he was not talking about his devotions and those kinds of things. He was talking about his mathematical equations of his orbital mechanics. In another place, he said, I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. He said, this is, this is a way to magnify God, to glorify God, to help us realize how wonderful God is. All truth has that power if we let it. Even people who don't know that they're approaching God through truth are still empowered by, given wings by, God. There's one other point I think that we ought to grasp, and it's it's encoded, I think, here in this Job passage, but it's encoded elsewhere in Scripture, too. Back there in verse 12, Job says, Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. And he complains about that. He says he could look all kinds of places. He can't find it. 
we don't seem to have the capacity to really get our hands on true understanding. The tighter you squeeze, the more you realize, oh, I don't quite have the full truth. I almost have it, but I don't have it all. Humans only ever get a partial grasp of truth, at least right now. As we live in this world, we only ever get sort of a partial glimpse here and there. Paul says it much more succinctly. You're probably very familiar with this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is a crucial, uh, crucial insight for us to keep in mind. Um, I can be okay with the fact that I only know some. I'm, however smart we get, however much learning we accumulate, it's okay for us to say to ourselves, we only know some. Most of the time we measure ourselves against each other. And so it is possible for you to find yourself as the smartest person in the room that you happen to be in. Um, that can happen, and that can happen a lot if you're really quite clever. But even so, and, and so you might get used to the feeling of, well, everybody always thinks I'm right. Even so, it's important to keep sight of the fact that compared to the knowledge of God, what you know is minuscule. It's tiny. And if you lose sight of that, if, if humans lose track of that, and we only just kind of measure ourselves against each other, bad things can happen to us. If we start thinking that we've grasped the whole truth somehow, then how do I view people who disagree with me? Well, they could be crazy people. They're, they could be bad people. I could have the right to coerce them or treat them with contempt and hatred. Um, but if I remember, <laughs> truth is partial. My grasp of truth is partial. That changes the flavor of our disagreement. Um, now, it's really easy here. Once we start talking about the fact that truth is partial and it's a, it's a, it's a thing that we grasp slowly and, and painfully and never fully. It's easy to get real lazy here and just say, well, who cares? We won't even try to get truth. Just live your life and don't worry about it. And that's not right because God's the God of truth. He wants humans to make progress in, and to keep grasping more. Also, it's a mistake to just kind of have the, uh, oh, tolerate everybody. You've got your view and I've got my view. There's a, that's a mistake for several reasons. One reason it's a mistake is oftentimes that's fake. People who say, oh, you have your view and I have my view. That's fake. It actually hides a deep-seated intolerance. It, it, it hides an intolerance that kind of is resentful of and, and is hateful and is maybe even just biding its time until it has a chance to dominate and wipe out its opposition. It is far better, far better, it takes more courage, but it's far better for us to discuss our differences 
uh, and, and to try and figure out what the real truth is with humility, knowing that we have only partial truth. And there's a bonus that God builds in there. We treat each other with respect. We discuss our differences uh, and try to get at the truth. It turns out that we can learn from each other. It seems so simple to say that, but the fact is, because you have truth and I've got truth, both of us have been down in that mine of God, digging for treasures. I worked like a dog and I found this gold nugget. You were over here in your mind. You found this emerald. They're both treasures. I say, oh, the treasure is gold. You say, oh, the treasure is emerald colored. We could both be right because we both have partial understanding of what's going on. If we insist on just the little bit that we've acquired, we're never going to get the full benefits that God has in store for us. If we treat each other with respect, try to learn from each other, God can help both of us to, to rise to a higher level. doesn't always work like that. Sometimes people really are wrong. But brothers and sisters, we need, we need to be called back to what God is, the God of truth, and to what Jesus said. Love even your enemy. Love your neighbor even as much as you love yourself. Even as we have people who disagree with us, who claim a truth that's far different from ours, even as it's tempting and we're in a culture that tells us, you don't have to listen to those folks anymore, you don't have to talk to those folks anymore, the best option is to just suppress those folks. Now is the time, above all, to treat each other with dignity and respect. Because that is what God calls us to do. Let's end with a prayer. Dear God, we thank you so much for your blessings. We thank you so much for the love that you show in our lives. God, we thank you that you are a God of truth. You call us to truth. God, help us to live in that truth. Help us to respect the truth that you have given us. and Help us to call each other to truth as well. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ.